Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for um, the consistency, the faithfulness we've had uh, from you and all the various details of what we need to have a study here. Uh, we've been studying in this book now, Father, for a while here, as you provided, but it goes further back than that. And it's encouraging, me to, uh, encouraging to me, Father, to think about uh, the fact that your word cannot be stopped. Uh, your word cannot be silenced. Uh, you have prepared it from centuries before. You have preserved it over all that time. You continue to declare it today. And when it is your will that it be taught, it will be taught. And there will be ears to hear. And Father, in knowing that, I'm taking great encouragement that the plans we make from week to week, the things that we might have to contend with in our schedules, none of that, Father, is a problem for you. You just continue day to day to speak about who you are and to speak to the world about your Son and about all that you've done and will do. And we are so thankful, Father, for that continuous, faithful declaration of truth from your Word. And we're committed, Father, to understanding it as best we can according to your Spirit. And we ask, Father, that you would be gracious and merciful tonight to us, those who have come tonight to hear and all those who would listen online, that you would open our hearts and, and our ears and help us understand these things as difficult as some of them may be and show us your character and your love and your will in the midst of terrible times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now reach the final a climactic end to the first half of the book of Ezekiel. And from most books of, of the Bible that we study, we don't think too much about halves. We don't celebrate getting halfway through it. But in this case, it's very much that kind of a book. The first half and the second half of this book are very different. So it is a bit of an achievement. It is a bit of an accomplishment to get to the first half, uh, end of the first half. And the end of the first half of this book is the end of the period of, of prophecies that chastise Israel for their unfaithfulness. So over the past 22 chapters that I've been teaching this book, and perhaps you've heard all of them, you'll know the Lord has taken Israel to task for centuries of extreme ungodliness. And the nation has played the harlot with God. They've chased after idols. The enemy of, of God has used that to entrap his people in all manner of sin. They've fallen prey to some of the most egregious behavior that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Rampant immorality, sexual depravity, depraved indifference to human life, corrupt leadership, and evil hearts. And as a result, the people of Israel have already experienced some severe consequences, severe retribution by the Lord. And yet, the worst is still to come. Some of the things he's done already, he's withheld rain. We heard that earlier. Drought and starvation followed. He's removed his protection from the nations that surround Israel, the enemies that want to take her over. You have Jerusalem and its kings having fallen now repeatedly from earlier attacks. And at an earlier point in this story, the Lord has withdrawn his glory from the temple for the very first time since it entered. And now the nation of God sits on the threshold of complete destruction. And Ezekiel has spent the last several years warning the exiles in a variety of ways that the Babylonians are coming back, and when they do, it will result in a devastation beyond anything the people could possibly imagine. It'll be so noteworthy, it will be talked about in the annals of history for a long, long time. Meanwhile, as they hear these things, the people of God have dismissed what Ezekiel says, they make excuses, they continue to cling to these unrealistic hopes of rescue. So, that's where we are now. We're at the end of this series of prophecies that speak about this coming final judgment for the city. So as the Lord is wrapping up all these warnings, he has started to ratchet up his rhetoric using some of the most extreme language 
found anywhere in Scripture in these two chapters. And in these final two chapters, you find first an allegory, and then secondly a parable. And together, those two stories make abundantly clear just how deserving Israel was of this coming judgment, and it explains to them what the consequences are going to be. Some of this you've heard, certainly, but you haven't heard it like this before. So chapter 23, where we begin tonight, is an allegory. It's two sisters who are harlots, and they represent Israel's history of idolatry. Then we get to chapter 24 next. Uh, Later tonight, you'll see a parable that explains the beginning of Babylon's third attack and final attack. All right, the language in this, I said, the language in these chapters is rough, uh, especially chapter 23. But the Lord's language is intentional. He wants to reflect the extreme nature of Israel's sin and the extreme displeasure he has taken in it. Uh, We'll talk more about that as we look at some of the language. Uh, We're going to take this chapter and the next one in larger chunks than usual. Because there's a lot of text here, we only have you know, the hour that we normally take, so I move through it a little more quickly, but it's okay, because in some ways it's a better way to approach these chapters, that is, to hear the Lord telling this story the way Israel heard it from the prophet, with the language and all that comes with it. All right? So it begins, though, with a short introduction in the first four verses, so we'll start there. Ezekiel 23, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one mother, and they played the harlot in Egypt. They played the harlot in their youth. There their breasts were pressed and their virgin bosom was handled. Their names were Ahola the elder and Aholibah her sister. And they became mine and they bore sons and daughters. And as for their names, Samaria is Ahola and Jerusalem is Aholibah. All right, so this is the allegory starting. In verse 1, the prophet says, I get this word from the Lord. And that's not an insignificant statement in this case. We've seen it before. But remember, now that you see it here, that tells you the rest of this chapter is written in the first person as if from the Lord. And that reminds us that even though there are some things said here that might shock us, they're not sinful. I mean, by definition, the word's coming from the Lord. So it's not a sin. It's the word of God. And so even though the language is hard and strong at times, that doesn't in itself make it sinful. So moving on, the prophet announces here an allegory about two sisters and one mother. And those two sisters are engaged in harlotry. Notice it says they engaged in harlotry in Egypt while they were in their youth. So even as young women in the story, they allowed men to become intimate with them, violating their purity. And now we get to kind of the explanation of this coming in so the Lord makes sure you know where he's going right from the start. He makes it clear this is an allegory. And in the language that he uses, you know, women's breasts here, for example, he makes it clear right from the start this is going to be provocative. And the point is to gain attention for the words that the prophet is about to speak, to shock the conscience of those people in Israel who were hearing these words. In other words, if the Lord is willing to resort to such language, it tells you something serious is afoot. I like to compare it to the way a mother might call out her child using the full name. Stephen Daniel Armstrong, right? You know there was something bad coming right after that. And in a way, that's how the Lord is speaking to Israel through Ezekiel here. He's he's trying to show them just how far that they have pushed him in their relationship and now what's coming. All right, back to the allegory. He says the names of these sisters were Ahola and Aholaba. Those are two girl names that I would also uh, just mention in passing. They have, for some reason, fallen out of favor. Ever since this chapter was written. Uh, Ahola means she who has a tent. And Aholaba means my tent is in her. And the Lord identifies each of these characters for us so that we know right up front 
Who's represented by this allegory? Ahola represents Samaria. Now, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel after the split of the kingdom. Aholabah represents Jerusalem, which, not coincidentally, is the capital of the southern kingdom, of Judah. So right away, we know where this allegory is going. You have a story about two sisters who collectively represent the division of Israel into the two kingdoms following Solomon's rule. So if you put the two sisters together, you got the whole of Israel. And those two kingdoms were sisters, in a sense, because they had a single mother, who is the Lord here. So, you know, in, the terms of, in terms of the allegory, the Lord gives birth, as it were, to the nation of Israel, and in time they divided to become two sisters, or siblings, if you will. And the names of these two sisters point you to something specific, to the spiritual heart of each. Samaria, as I said, was the capital of the northern kingdom, but it was also the site of their false temple that they constructed for themselves, Since they had de- abandoned the southern kingdom and left Jerusalem behind, they needed a place to worship. They couldn't go back to Jerusalem. So they created their own version of what was in Jerusalem in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And that place for worship in Samaria was their tent, as Ahola is said to have. She who is a tent, or she who has a tent. That's Samaria. Now Jerusalem was still the location of worship for the southern kingdom, and there stood the true temple, the Lord's temple, the real temple, his tent, in other words, so Aholabah means, my tent is in her. As if the Lord is saying, my tent is in Jerusalem. All right, then you hear what goes on with these two sisters. They were engaged in harlotry from a young age, and you notice again, I mentioned that reference to Egypt. Now, those of you who've been here now for a few weeks, you'll remember a few weeks ago we learned that the nation of Israel first engaged in idol worship when they were in Egypt, before they were in slavery, when they were still at the time of Goshen, shortly after Joseph became a pharaoh. We learned back then that they had already started engaging in idolatry, and the reason they got put into slavery by the pharaoh was God's judgment on them because they had begun to engage in idolatry in Egypt. We learned that a few weeks ago. If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to that. So when the nation was freed from slavery in Egypt, they then went out into the wilderness. And, of course, they quickly returned to idolatry at the mountain with Moses. So if you've ever wondered why the the, uh, Israelites were so quick to call for a golden calf and worship at the base of the mountain, Ezekiel tells us it's because this isn't the first time they've done it. They were reverting back to their old behaviors once they had been freed. It shows you how tenuous they were in their obedience to God even from the start. So they've shown this early interest in idolatry as a young woman willing to engage in harlotry. He compares worshiping false gods to a sexual act of prostitution. And it's a perfect comparison. It happens quite often in the Bible, this comparison. Because what prostitution is to the covenant of marriage, so is idolatry to the covenant we have with the Lord. That is, prostitution is a counterfeit marriage of sorts. It gives the illusion of obtaining the things that can only be found through a proper covenantal relationship in marriage. But in the end, that illusion will fall apart, obviously, because harlotry, if it's allowed to continue, either for the man or the woman, results in great physical and emotional devastation for both. Rather than finding the love and fulfillment that is only possible in marriage, harlotry produces guilt and abuse and physical harm, and that makes harlotry a perfect picture of idolatry. Because in a spiritual sense, those same things happen when someone chases after an idol. Idolatry is a counterfeit of a true spiritual relationship with the Lord. And it also promises benefits that are merely illusions. 
It's like harlotry. It results in great spiritual devastation. So rather than obtaining that loving, peaceful relationship with the Lord, with the Creator, an idol worshiper ends up being captive to a cruel, lying, merciless master. So idolatry yields corrupt hearts, deceived minds, debased spirits, and in time, the flesh and the enemy gain complete control over that person. As Paul says in Romans, the idolater eventually receives the penalty of their sin in their own body as they move down this this staircase of depravity. All right, so now the Lord, that's the introduction. That's where we're going. We have an allegory of two sisters representing two halves of Israel engaged in idolatry pictured as harlotry. And now he's going to begin to recap the process that went, that Israel went through in their history of idolatry, beginning with how it went for Ahola, the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 5. Ahola played the harlot while she was mine, and she lusted after her lovers, after the Assyrians, her neighbors, who were clothed in purple, governors and officials, all of them desirable young men, horsemen, riding on horses. She bestowed her harlotries on them, all of whom were the choicest men of Assyria, and with all of whom she lusted after, with all their idols she defiled herself. She did not forsake her harlotries from the time in Egypt, for in her youth men had lain with her, and they had handled her virgin bosom and poured out their lust on her. Therefore I gave her into the hand of her lovers, into the hand of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. They covered her nakedness, they took her sons and her daughters, but they slew her with the sword. Thus she became a byword among women, and they executed judgments on her. That's a short history of the northern kingdom in regard to idolatry. They were enamored, he says, with the gods of Assyria, which the Lord compares to a lustful young woman eyeing attractive men. And the kings of the northern kingdom, if you know the story of Israel's northern kingdom, it was one bad king after another, evil men. And they all had their problems, but in general, the nation sought eventually an alliance with Assyria. It was was sort of a, a lesser of two evils strategy on their part. Because the northern kingdom was in a conflict with their sister, with the southern kingdom of Judah. And so they looked for an ally in their fight against Judah. And in order to gain trust and allegiance with Assyria and gain their help as an ally, the king of Israel had to pledge loyalty to the Assyrian gods and to the Assyrian king. There's an ancient archaeological artifact called the Black Obelisk of Shamanazer that you may have heard of. It's a famous archaeological find. And on that uh, obelisk, there's a depiction of a moment when King Jehu from the northern kingdom of Israel met with King Shalemazer III of Assyria, and the obelisk shows Jehu bowing before Shalemazer and paying him a tribute of money for allegiance. So we know historically it happened from the scripture, but we also have that evidence archaeologically. So as the Lord says in verse 8, the people of the northern kingdom didn't learn the lesson from when they were in Egypt, engaged in idolatry. They just continued in their harlotries after they came out of Egypt, and they went after Assyria. But eventually that catches up with him. He says in verses 9 and 10, the Lord turned Assyria against Israel. Assyria was the nation that came and attacked the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., hauled them all off, and put an end to those tribes in the land. So, metaphorically, you could say Assyria exposed Ahola's nakedness in the sense that the Lord withdrew his protection, exposing his people to harm. They fell into the angry hand of their lover, and many died by the sword. Finally, the Lord says, I love this, that they became a byword among women. Now, the Hebrew word there for byword is Shem, and that's literally the word name in Hebrew. Uh, But what he's saying is this, the northern kingdom became known by a certain name among women, and that name was Jezebel. 
Jezebel, as you remember, was the famous queen of the northern kingdom with Ahab, who represented treachery and evil, and ultimately she was vanquished with him. But that's the name that people began to say about the northern kingdom of Israel. She was a harlot. She was an evil idolatress to God. She was like a Jezebel. That was the historical name for the northern kingdom for a time. All right, so that's their history. Not a great sister. Part two, now you have the harlotry of the younger sister. Now this one goes much longer, and that makes sense because they're the audience for this prophecy. They're the ones who are now subject to God's wrath. So this is Aholabah, verse 11. Now her sister Aholabah saw this, yet she was more corrupt in her lust than she. And her harlotries were more than the harlotries of her sister. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and officials, the ones near, magnificently dressed, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. I saw that she had defiled herself. They both took the same way. So she increased her harlotries, and she saw men portrayed on the wall, images of the Chaldeans portrayed with vermilion, girded with belts on their loins, with flowing turbans on their heads, all of them looking like officers, like the Babylonians in Chaldea, the land of their birth. When she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. The Babylonians came to her to the bed of love and defiled her with their harlotry. And when she had been defiled by them, she became disgusted with them. She uncovered her harlotries and uncovered her nakedness. Then I became disgusted with her as I had become disgusted with her sister. Yet she multiplied her harlotries, remembering the days of her youth when she played the harlot in the land of Egypt. She lusted after their paramours, whose flesh is like the flesh of donkeys and whose issue is like the issue of horses. Thus, you longed for the lewdness of your youth when the Egyptians handled your bosom because of the breasts of your youth. Well, it gets worse. So you have Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Now, the southern kingdom of Judah may have been late to this party compared to the other sister, but they did their best to make up for it, because they were even worse than Ahola was. Uh, It says that Aholabah saw what the northern kingdom did, how it was judged, in other words, and yet they persisted in following the same things. So like the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom eventually looked for alliances too, and they also, and this is the, the crazy part historically, they also sought an alliance with Assyria in order to battle a common enemy that they had at the time, which was Egypt. So that alliance eventually resulted in King Josiah dying in battle against Egypt at Megiddo. Some of you may know that story. But as Judah becomes more familiar with Assyrian military culture, later it became Babylonian culture when the Babylonians conquered Assyria. As, as the southern kingdom begins to associate more with that culture, and they get a chance to, to, to see the regalia of it and the power of it and the magnificence of what they did, uh, they fell in love with it. In verses 14 and 15, the the Lord describes how some in Israel saw murals in Babylon and Assyria depicting military might in all of the costumes and the like. And that splendor, that imperial splendor of the Chaldeans, at that time in history was unequaled in power. Uh, You may know the seven wonders of the world included the hanging gardens in Babylon, which apparently were a marvel of the day. Certainly they're still considered that. So here's Israel not, not nearly so uh, magnificent, not nearly so splendorous. And they get into you know, Assyria, and they, some, some of their people see what's there and report it back. And next thing you know, they are enamored with a connection to that culture. And that fascination led the kings of Judah, the final set of evil kings, to become entangled with the idolatry of the Chaldean culture. 
And the Lord says that the harlot Aholabah allowed the Babylonians to take her into prostitution. That's the picture again. So by worshiping the idols of Babylon, the people of Judah put themselves in bed, as it were, with the Babylonians. But just like all adulterous relationships, eventually it goes badly. And after a time, Israel decides that Babylon wasn't her lover after all, wasn't the one they wanted. We're told that in verse 17. They decide they don't want her anymore. And that's a picture of what we've been studying in earlier chapters. How those last few kings of Israel, of Judah, who were under the, they were vassals of Babylon after Babylon had come in and conquered the, uh, the nation in the first waves. You know, they installed their own kings. Those men eventually got tired of being a vassal of Babylon and rebelled. That's what we're seeing described here in verse 17. And in seeking to throw off the Babylonian rule, those kings, and particularly one of them, tried to establish a new alliance again with Egypt. Here you see the Lord saying they remembered their days of idolatry back in the land. And so they go back again to Egypt for help. That goes very poorly for the nation of Judah. When Babylon's army returned, they just easily defeat them every time, at least in the first two instances. So in verses 18 through 21... The Lord describes that episode. Now, this is where it gets a little graphic, but he he describes that episode of Israel switching back and forth between paramours, being interested in the lustful desires for Babylon, turning off that desire, turning to Egypt, going after Egypt's power. The idea here is she has uh, Judah has this insatiable, lustful, sexual desire for any man she can find. That's the metaphor. That's the allegory. And in this case, Aholabah is looking for the strongest man she can find. The stronger and more uh, virulent the man, the more she wants him, the better it is for her. Originally, she goes to Babylon because of the nation's strength attracting her. Now, after exhausting her interest in that man, the Lord says she seeks an even stronger man down in Egypt, remembering her youthful lust. She remembers Egypt. She goes back to that nation for its strength. And then in verse 20 and 21, you get this strong graphic language. Now, in ancient culture... Donkeys and horses were renowned for their sexual drive in heat. And as a result, they became a metaphor in that culture, in that time, for hyperactive sexual lust. In fact, the Egyptian hieroglyphic for a lustful person is, you know, the hieroglyphics are pictures. The, the hieroglyphic for a lustful person in, in Egypt is a horse. So the Lord's just using that same association that was common in that culture to condemn Judah's out-of-control appetite for idolatry. So he says, Judah pursued Egypt's idols with as much zeal as a donkey would pursue its mate. And they lusted after Egypt's idols like following a horse's issue. Now, that may sound worse than it is for some, because the Hebrew word used for issue is a feminine word in Hebrew. So it's referring to the woman's bodily fluid, not the man's. The woman's, in this case, the the female horse's discharge while in heat. Okay? And why is he referring to that? Because that's what attracts the man, in the case of the horse, a a male horse. It's that um, discharge that tells a male animal that the female animal's in heat and ready to mate. Okay? So what the Lord is describing in Israel's case here is he's saying the Egyptian, that, that Israel was calling, as it were, to the Egyptian gods to come her way, to come mate with her, as it were, as if she were a mare in heat trying to attract a stud horse. And again, that's a, in that culture, they understood that animal to have the strongest sexual desire of any animal they'd ever seen. You know, they'd go crazy trying to mate. So all the while, the nation thought back to its good old days in Egypt and the time it spent in bed with them, so to speak, in idolatry, and said, let's go back to that again. So the Lord is mocking them, 
obviously, making them to appear as debased as they truly were by using graphic sexual language, which has a, a potent impact on, your, uh, on the person who hears it. It's shocking. It's, it's provocative. Because when he says the same things about their idolatry, it, it went right over their heads. When he talked about how debased and terrible their idolatry was, they made excuse after excuse after excuse. So he just goes one step lower into a gutter, so to speak, where he can make an impact on them so that they can get the point of just how he perceives idolatry in their case. All right, so now he moves to the judgment that comes for this, verse 22. Therefore, O Oholabah, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will arouse your lovers against you, from whom you were alienated, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Pekad, Shoah, Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and officials, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. They will come against you with weapons, chariots, and wagons, and with a company of peoples. They will set themselves against you on every side, with buckler and shield and helmet, and I will commit the judgment to them, and they will judge you according to their customs. I will set my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in wrath. They will remove your noses and your ears, and your survivors will fall by the sword. They will take your sons and your daughters, and your survivors will be consumed by the fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will make your lewdness and your harlotry brought from the land of Egypt to cease from you, so that you will not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt any more. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give you into the hand of those whom you hate and into the hand of those whom you were alienated. They will deal with you in hatred, take all of your property and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your harlotries will be uncovered, both your lewdness and your harlotries. These things will be done to you because you have played the harlot with the nations, because you have defiled yourself with their idols. You have walked in the way of your sister. Therefore, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, you will drink your sister's cup, which is deep and wide. You will be laughed at and held in derision. It contains much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of horror and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it. Then you will gnaw its fragments and tear your breasts, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, bear now the punishment of your lewdness and your harlotries. So this section of judgment, I read the whole thing again so that you get the full impact. But it begins, and we're just going to jump through summarizing it. You can kind of get a sense of what it's saying without a lot of explanation, but there are a few points probably worth mentioning. He's explaining how Judah's suitor-turned-enemy Babylon was going to turn back on them, just like they turned on it. And it starts with the Babylonian Empire coming against Judah in, those, in this third and final attack, the thing we've been waiting for, the thing that he's been building up toward. And the various names you see listed in verse 23, those are tribes that are all within the Babylonian Empire. So the, we typically think of Chaldean as a metaphor for Babylonian. But the Chaldeans were just the most powerful and elite tribe of the Babylonian Empire. And so they were the, basically the metaphor. Similar to the way Judah is actually Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. But we call it Judah because that was the largest tribe of the territory. So he's just saying, in other words, he's saying, I'm going to bring the entire culture of Babylon, that culture that you found so attractive, that you thought was your suitor, I'm going to bring the whole of it against you now. And to mock his love, uh, Judah's love for this culture, notice the Lord's description of the army. If you were to compare this to what we read earlier in the chapter, it's kind of, I mean, you see the, the humor, so to speak. In verses 23 and 24, he describes the appearance of all these soldiers and their company of, of equipment, as they're marching on the land. 
And he does it in ways similar to the way he described their uh, affection for these uh, same things earlier when they were looking in a longing way toward Babylon. So what he's saying is, it's a harlot who's fallen in love with a certain man, and she admired his piercing eyes, and she admired his impressive muscles and strong hands, and then that same man turns on the harlot, and those piercing eyes are now looking at her with hatred, and those strong muscles are now seizing her, and those hands that she admired are now beating her. So it's, it's turning everything she liked about this, this culture into a cause against her, the army defeating her, and so on. And so the things that Judah admired are now the things that judge her, and the harm that will be brought to her is significant. You saw the list there, children being taken from them, survivors not, not surviving uh, because of, of the attack. And interestingly, it says many will lose their lives, but survivors will lose their noses and their ears. All right, now in the ancient Near East, adulteresses who were caught were often punished by having their nose and their ears cut off. And the reason that was done is women often adorned those parts of her body with, with rings, and so it would be the way you would attract a man. And so the lesson that's being taught there for that woman and for others is that you remove those body parts. Now the woman is grotesque. Now she's you know, very unattractive to anyone at that point for the rest of her life. And it's a lesson that a woman should not go seeking for a man outside of marriage. And that was the way they used to discipline or judge women who went into adultery. But apparently what the Babylonians have taken to doing in their own way of, of warfare was to mutilate prisoners in a similar way, probably to punish rebellion, which is exactly what Judah has done now. They've rebelled twice against the powers of, of Babylon. So that's what's going to happen to the survivors. Now, that, we don't know to what extent that was done. We don't know if it was 100% universally done or if it was just selectively done. But there were people living in Babylon in exile from Judah for the rest of their lives looking that way as a result of this. In verses 28 and 29, the Lord says he's going to turn Jerusalem over to those who Judah hates and that Aholabah's nakedness would be revealed, meaning the Lord is going to leave her vulnerable too. And then verse 31, the Lord says all of this is the result of Judah's willingness to follow her sister's example. So she shares in her sister's cup of judgment. He goes into this little song here. Some people call it the song of the cup. Verses 32 through 34, he starts here with this metaphor of a drinking cup. That represents the wrath. You know, and you've seen this before, right? Bowls in Scripture sometimes are used to represent containers that have the wrath of God in them. And then those are poured out, as it were, God issuing His wrath on someone or on some group. That's the idea here. This is the same cup as her sister drank from. And the irony in that is, you would have thought she might have learned a lesson. Didn't happen. So when the Assyrians conquered Israel in the north, they were you know, handing Israel a cup, so to speak. Now the southern kingdom is going to be defeated as well. One interesting little side point here, when the northern kingdom was taken away, the southern kingdom was not shedding too many tears for them because they had been historically at odds. And so they probably celebrated their defeat. Um, So the disappearance of the northern kingdom was basically a relief to the Judah, to the kingdom of Judah. Now the Lord is saying to Judah, you celebrated a little too quickly because you repeated those sins, you're going to have to drink from the same cup. And he calls the cup deep and wide which is an indication of how much wrath it, is, it holds. So much, in fact, that they could scarcely consume it. Nevertheless, Aholabah is going to drain that cup, he says, and it would cause people to laugh at her as a result uh, because it was as if she was drunk. So the metaphor here is of drinking so much that you're so drunk that everyone makes fun of you. Now I want you to imagine a child, to kind of give you a sense of what this is saying to Israel, imagine a child who's forced to drink medicine uh, for their own good, but it tastes terrible. And even worse, the dosage is huge. 
So, you know, that child just sees that as an impossible task. I can't begin to consume all of that, and yet they have to. And so it's just the painful process of getting it down. And then after that, it says, Aholabah is going to gnaw, or that same word in Hebrew could be translated break, the cup into fragments and tear at her breasts. The, the other, in other words, the consequences of the judgment go beyond the moment, beyond the attack, beyond the destruction of the city, beyond the devastation. That they, they go on tragedy after tragedy for years to come. It's like drinking the cup didn't put an end to it. It just keeps going. I remember the feeling I first time, uh, the very first time I had to get a colonoscopy. How many of you enjoy that little moment in life with me? And you had to drink that prep formula the night before? My first thought when I looked at that large beaker, they tell you you have to, to drown. You know, like I'm, That's a deep, wide cup. I don't think I can handle that. Do I have to drink all of this? Remember that? And then you look at the instructions at, like twice, three times. It's really that much? And then you realize, I've got to drain this cup. And just like Israel, the consequences of that cup continue on for quite a bit of time afterward. <laughs> if you haven't done that yet, you'll know. All right. That experience, though, is a walk in the park compared to the cup Judah is going to drink. Right, Verse 35. The Lord says that they will bear this severe punishment because of their lewdness and harlotry. Speaking of idolatry, of course. It's probably worth remembering at this point that the warning that the nation got that this would happen doesn't just start with Ezekiel or even with Isaiah. It starts with the law. You Remember in Exodus, sorry, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now stop right there for a second before we read more. Notice the connection to Egypt again. Now, I know this is happening in the context of the, of the Exodus, so that makes sense. But now you have a little more insight into the connection. For, for that moment, the Lord is essentially saying, I brought you out of a place where you engaged in idolatry. Have no other gods before me. There's now this uh, historical connection that we have to keep in mind that says when Israel was in Egypt, they fell into idolatry. It became like a disease that went with them. And the Lord is warning them right up front. Don't have that happen again. No other gods. And then he goes on. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth, which is where the Egyptian gods came from. They were animals from all those spheres. And he says, you shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And then he goes on. Now, we know that third and fourth generation reference now is a specific reference to exile to what he does as he puts Israel in exile. It's not anything else. It doesn't apply to anyone else. doesn't apply to any other situation. It is only with respect to idolatry and in Israel. And it's why you see him saying third and fourth generations, because when you put somebody in exile, they stay there for a while, their kids are there, their grandkids are there. And that's the consequence. So this is what God said to them at the very outset of his relationship with them in the law. If you return to idolatry, in so many words, you will be exiled, because I am a jealous God. So... He makes clear, you do this, I'm going to respond in jealousy. And now what you're seeing in Ezekiel is what a jealous God looks like. Now, if the judgment the Lord is bringing here bothers us at all, I mean, we've had this conversation, I think, once already, but if you start to see all of this culmination and language and you're thinking, gosh, this just doesn't feel like God, the one I, the one I know anyway out of the New Testament, then I ask you to consider the alternative. That is, what if God wasn't a jealous God? What if he wasn't jealous over idolatry? What if he acted ambivalently? What if he just let wandering people go without a fight? 
That's what you're really suggesting, right? Because the alternative to being jealous in this sense, that is, willing to pull Israel back to himself through whatever means necessary, if the alternative to that is to go nice on them, it's effectively the alternative of not caring, of letting them go. How would you feel if your spouse reacted to your infidelity with a shrug? That's kind of a hard one to imagine because it puts you in the position of the uh, adulterer, right? But if you could imagine that for a minute, wouldn't true love put up a fight, at least initially? I mean, it's kind of an ironic turn of events, though. You're the one who wandered first, but wouldn't you still feel as if your spouse was the one without love for you if they cared nothing for the fact that you were cheating on them? I mean, it's kind of a weird way to think of it, but that's what you're asking God to do if you say this is too much. You're asking God not to be jealous. That's the situation here between Israel and the Lord. The Lord is putting up a fight to keep wandering Israel, his wife, from going astray any further. And his methods are commensurate with the degree of wandering. That is to say, they have pursued idols like a donkey in heat, to use his metaphor. They are enraptured by the idols they see around them. They have been doing this consistently on and off since Egypt, since before they were in slavery in Egypt. So if the Lord's going to bring Israel back to himself and put an end to this once and for all, and remember, that's the backdrop here, that historically, after this captivity period ended and Israel goes back to the land, they never again go after idols. Never. That's a first time for them since the time of Egypt. If he's going to bring them to that point, he has to act in jealousy in the strongest possible terms to affect the outcome that he wants. The alternative is to just keep doing this. That's not better. So the response he chooses here breaks the hold that idolatry had on Israel's heart. And I would argue that's a preferable response from God to ambivalence. So the Lord summarizes the case for that coming judgment as he ends the chapter here. Uh, And we're going to read 36 to 45, and it sounds here like a prosecutor making the closing argument in a trial. So hear it that way. Verse 36, Moreover, the Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahola and Aholabah? Then declare to them their abominations. For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and even caused their sons whom they bore to me to pass through the fire to them as food. Again, they have done this to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbaths. For when they had slaughtered their children for their idols, they entered my sanctuary on the same day to profane it. And lo, thus they did within my house. Furthermore, They have even sent for men who come from afar, to whom a messenger was sent, and lo, they came, for whom you bathed, painted your eyes, and decorated yourselves with ornaments, and you sat on a splendid couch with a table arranged before it, on which you had had set my incense and my oil. The sound of a carefree multitude was with her, and drunkards were brought from the wilderness with men of the common sort, and they put bracelets on the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads, Then I said concerning her who was worn out by adulteries, will they now commit adultery with her when she is thus? But they went into her as they would go into a harlot. Thus they went into Ohola and Aholabah, the lewd women. But they, righteous men, will judge them with the judgment of adulteresses and with the judgment of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and blood is on their hands. For thus says the Lord God, Bring up a company against them and give them over to terror and plunder. The company will stone them with stones and cut them down with their swords. They will slay their sons and their daughters and burn their houses with fire. Thus I will make lewdness cease from the land, that all women may be admonished and not commit lewdness as you have done. Your lewdness will be requited upon you, and you will bear the penalty of worshiping your idols. Thus you will know that I am the Lord God. All right, that's the end of the pronouncements of judgment. We'll see what comes of it in the next chapter. But 
We'll go through this quicker than it may feel. For the length of it, it's pretty straightforward. He just says, we're going to judge these women, the nations, on the basis of their track record of idolatry. They've committed it, idolatry. They've done it in the process uh, of engaging in some of the worst abominations that come with it. Uh, You notice uh, the reference to child sacrifice there in verses 37 and 39. And then notice between those two references, the Lord reiterates that they engaged in idol worship in the temple. In fact, he says in those three verses, the parents would literally travel from a high place where they had just killed and literally cooked their children. They had killed and, and cooked their children on a sacrificial altar. Let that sink in for a second. Then they went directly from there to the temple to engage in false idolatry inside the temple where they had set up idols. And to make matters worse, they did all of this on the Sabbath, which is a day of worship in Israel. So what they were doing was equating Yahweh worship with idol worship and did all the unspeakable things that you just heard in the course of a normal church day. This was church for them. <laughs> Go to church with kids, come home with fewer. Now some of you would like that deal, but that's, that's not exactly what we want to see happening. Not this way. So... That's, I mean, it's, we're kind of trying to make light of it because if you sit here and think about it too seriously, it's just too much to think about. So the nation, this is the, this is the final argument of the prosecutor. Furthermore, he says, the nation sought strength in relationships with pagan nations that surrounded them rather than in the covenant they had with the Lord. And he gives an elaborate description there of how, he, how they wooed in these nations. And I don't need to just you know, elaborate on it. You can see the metaphor clearly. But it's in place of a covenant with the Lord. They're seeking for a relationship with something else. Verses 40 and 42 He summarizes the enticing of these foreign suitors, saying she made herself as attractive as possible. Now that's an interesting reference, and there is a historical anchor there. Uh, There's a historical side to that. Israel made itself attractive to other nations by dispensing with the observance of the law. And they did so because the law, by its intention, one of its main purposes was to make the nation of Israel stand out, to be separate, to be different. That was one of its central purposes, that it made the nation of Israel a peculiar people. And as such, a people that the rest of the nations of the world did not particularly like and didn't want to associate with. That was intentional. And as a result, so you could say the law made Israel intentionally unattractive to its neighbors. That was to keep Israel separate. But when the nation itself said, we'd rather have relationships with Assyria or Babylon or Egypt... They had to seek a way to make themselves more attractive to those nations so that they could build that alliance. And to do that, they made compromise after compromise in setting aside observances of the law. And as a result, in time, they became no different than the other nations that were around them. And that made them an attractive ally, potentially. It was a repudiation of the covenant that they had with the Lord so that they could establish these other relationships with pagan nations. It was like a woman dolling herself up to gain the, the interest of a neighbor while her husband's at work. It's the same idea of adultery. It's just what adultery is, right? All right, but given Israel's track record of spurning her suitors, you know, she would take one and then she'd hate it and then go to a new one. That's why the Lord asks in verse 43 there, uh, 43 and 44, he asks the question, why is it that anyone would want her anyway? given her, her pattern of behavior. Nevertheless, they did go after her. Finally, verses 45 through 49, he pronounces sentence. He says, a righteous man, righteous man will judge her. Now, you might ask, well, who are these righteous men? How did that happen? Now, it's still within the context of allegory. He's talking here about what Deuteronomy 22 requires for an adulteress. In Deuteronomy 22, that chapter of the law spells out how Israel was to handle an adulteress if she was found to be truly 
uh, an adulteress, she's to be judged by the righteous elders of Israel. Those are the righteous men in the allegory who would then judge an adulteress. Now, in this case, she's, we're talking about a nation of people who are in idolatry, so it's an, it's an allegory. The real way that, that Israel was judged was by Babylon coming in. But in Deuteronomy 22, do you know what the penalty was for an adulteress? She was stoned. She was stoned to death. And if you notice in verses 46 through 47, the Lord describes a scene of stoning for a person found guilty of adultery. But it's all allegory. It's describing the attack that's coming. So sentence has been passed. She is guilty. She deserves this punishment. Now we move to chapter 24. And this chapter doesn't take very long, but it's very important to where we're going. Um, the Lord is now giving, through Ezekiel, as it were, a report from the front lines of the third attack. Now remember, this is all being written and spoken while uh, Ezekiel's in Babylon, or you know, with the exiles. Jerusalem is hundreds of miles to the south, southeast, or southwest. And, so the, and there's no cell phones, you know this, right? No phones, nothing. There's no way that people who are up in Babylon would know of the attack real time. And yet... This is a real-time report from God to the people in exile about what's happening in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month, saying, Son of man, write the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. Speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on the pot, put it on, and also pour water in it. Put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder. Fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock and also pile wood under the pot. Make it boil vigorously and seethe its bones in it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. For her blood is in her midst. She placed it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, that it may cause wrath to come up to take vengeance. I have put her blood on the bare rock, that it may not be covered. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! I will also make the pile great. Heap on the wood, kindle the fire, boil the flesh well, and mix in the spices, and let the bones be burned. Then set it empty on its coals, so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. She has wearied me with toil, yet her great rust has not gone from her. Let her rust be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you are not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath on you. I'll start with the date of this. Um, The chapter begins with another uh, of Ezekiel's precise dates. If you've been here with the study for a while or heard it from past lessons, you'll remember I say that that's one of the hallmarks of this book, these very precise dates whenever he gets a new prophecy. In this case, the date the Lord gives to Ezekiel and told him to share with the people. This is the date uh, when he received the word, and this is the date in which he communicated it to the people on that same day. In our calendar, this is January fifteenth, 586 B.C., And that date is especially important in this case, in the case of this prophecy, because that is the day, historically, that began the final siege of Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar's army showed up for the third time, ready to start the battle. It was a momentous day in Israel's history. It was so devastating, because it resulted in the destruction of the city and the temple, that that day is still observed today in Israel with a special fast, because of the mourning that still is 
is now practiced for the day that the temple was destroyed. And the fact that Ezekiel could declare the day of siege when it was happening hundreds of miles away further validates his ministry as a prophet. And that gives added reason for the people of Israel to pay attention to what he says here and later. All right, so the song I just read is largely self-explanatory. The imagery is not hard to understand. We saw it in an earlier chapter. This idea of a pot being heated up as a judgment, as a symbol of judgment. And in this case, Israel is the meat in the pot. The city is the pot. It's heated up on a judgment fire. And the rust that's in this pot that seems to be the, the main focus for God, getting the rust out, getting the rust out, it's the decay of the hearts of the people. It's a picture of them in their depravity. And the blood that gets mentioned here, that's the blood of her false sacrifices, of the violence from one brother to another that was going on in the city as a result of their depravity. That is on display as well. And it's also the blood of the coming judgment. And God says it's going to be spilled on a rock, not buried in sand. It's another way of saying it's going to be on display for the world to see. This is a seminal moment in ancient history, not just for Israel, but in in worldly ways, this is a huge moment. Something so dramatic that people talked about it for a very long time. It was like Israel, the meat in the pot, was being boiled alive. And in verses 9 through 13, the Lord says, okay, there's been the attack, there's been the boiling, and then he says, let's turn the heat up a little bit. So he talks about adding more wood to the fire so that even the bones get burned in the pot. The symbolism is that the attack of the the army on the city, the devastation of that attack, will go beyond what was necessary to capture the city. That is to say, the army has a a heart of vengeance in it that takes out that vengeance on the city beyond what was militarily necessary. So, And the reason is because the army spent three years sieging that city. It took three years for Nebuchadnezzar to break through on that third attack. For three years, those men had to sit out there and encamp and try to get through and wait. And after you've had three years of waiting, when you finally get in there, it was just a bloodbath. But they, they were so vindictive that they were, they were cruel in their, in their violence. It wasn't merely military necessity. And he uses the picture of turning up the heat on this pot in such a way that it consumes the rust. Imagine how hot you have to make metal before you remove rust from its surface. It's almost got to be molten. And that's the idea here. The image of God pouring out his wrath to that extent. And the effect of the high heat, he says, is to cleanse her of her filthiness in verse 13 the spending of all of God's wrath on his people. So another way to ask the question is, forget the Babylonian army for a minute, how much wrath do you think Israel had stored up for herself after doing what she had been doing for so long? I mean, you you, you see the effect of it, right? Now, as a final point, the Lord assures the people that this prophecy is coming true, just as the prophet says, verse 14, he says, I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming. I will act. I will not relent. And I will not pity. And I will not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I will judge you, declares the Lord God. And then to show Israel, this is maybe the most fascinating moment in the book, apart from the prophecies of the kingdom. To show Israel a sign that Ezekiel's words are true, the Lord does something here very extraordinary. Verse 15, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you shall not mourn, You shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? 
Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters, whom you have left behind, will fall by the sword. You will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn. You will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities and you will groan to one another. Thus, Ezekiel will be assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you will do. When it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. So, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet again. This time the Lord says he's about to take from Ezekiel the desire of his eyes. And that is a Hebrew phrase that means a man's wife. So, the Lord is saying to Ezekiel, you need to be prepared for the sudden death of your wife. I'm going to take her with a blow. And that doesn't mean necessarily a physical blow. It just means uh, more the sense of in a moment. Okay? He's about to take her life. And as he does, he tells the prophet, you are not to mourn or weep or shed tears or make public sounds over her death. Now, few men in Scripture, I think, have been asked to do anything more difficult, at least emotionally so, than Ezekiel. In Hebrew culture and in the East generally, People whose loved ones uh, were left behind after a death were expected to mourn their loss loudly and publicly and for an extended period of time. And that mourning, uh, that public style of mourning was not only a natural thing to do for those who were grieving, but it was also a way of honoring the memory of that person in their absence to others to show that they were lost, you know, that they were loved. So when you ask someone like Ezekiel to refrain from mourning, never mind the shock of what was coming, just to refrain from mourning, that was not only a burden on his heart, but it was also an assault on his reputation among the people. They're going to interpret his silence as an affront to his wife's memory, to her honor. And they're going to ask, what's up with this? So in verse 18, Ezekiel says, he told the people, well, this is what the Lord's told me to do. He says, my, my, the Lord, notice in verse 18, the, the order of these things. He told the people what the Lord had told him. So that means he told the people, the Lord said, he's going to take my wife, and that you're going to, I cannot mourn her when she's taken. And then that night she dies. Now can you imagine what's going through that man's mind during the daytime of that day? And he knew that his wife was going to die probably that day. So he probably knows he's got one day left with his wife. I mean, you talk about somebody getting a, a, a bad diagnosis. I don't think many people get a one-day diagnosis for their death, do they? And I don't think he hid the news from her. If you're wondering whether she knew or not, he told everyone. How can she not know? Who's not going to tell her? So they both know they got one day left. What's a final day like that go? How does that go, I wonder? We can only assume that this wife was a, a woman of faith too, and if so, she knew her destiny was glory. But you know, nothing can take away from the feeling of loss. You know, instinctively, we all know when someone's gone, you know, the, the loss we're going to feel. You can't just make that go away. Even a Christian who knows there's a better future still suffers in that moment. This is a great burden for Ezekiel to bear. And you wonder, why would the Lord do this to anybody? Uh, for the time we have, because we are short on it, I'll only say this, and we can talk more about it maybe if you care to later. But keep in mind, the Bible says the day of your death was appointed before you were ever born. So, and, and for that matter... How you die and when you die is a largely irrelevant detail of your existence, eternally speaking. Right? It matters to us now for where we are now on that timeline. But eternally speaking, it's an irrelevant detail. And moreover, the Creator, God, has the instinctive right to do what He wants with everything He makes, to include setting the day of your death and the manner of it. 
The fact that they only found out a day before that moment makes it a little hard for them, true. But she was going to die that night whether he told Ezekiel about it or not. He uses that death as part of a plan to teach a group of people something very important. We can't judge the Creator for how and when he chooses that someone would die because it's an inherent right of the Creator to do that. On what basis would we judge him? For example, what would you say to him on on this matter? Would you say, that's wrong? And if so, when he says why, what would you say? Why is it wrong? Well, you should have let her live longer. Why? Well, you should have given her more time. Why? You shouldn't have told Ezekiel in advance. Why? Because it, it's not happy? I mean, in other words, what's our standard for saying what's good or wrong? This is something God has the right to do, and he uses it for good purpose. And the day of her death was appointed. The manner of her death was appointed. You could argue that it's grace that he had a, a day to, to know that he was about to lose his wife and say his goodbyes, if that were, as it were. The harder part is why not mourning? Well, in verse 19, the people ask the question, why aren't you mourning? What is all this about? And if he had never gotten their attention before, up to this point, he certainly has it now. And he replies that Israel's about to lose something they loved as much as he misses the wife he loves, or lost the wife he loves. And in their case, they're about to lose the temple in Jerusalem, something they never thought they would lose. That's been the sticking point all along. When they thought that what Ezekiel was saying was not worthy to be trusted or believed, it was because they never imagined God would let the temple be destroyed. And as long as they could cling to that belief, then there was always going to be some hope that God was going to prevail and that they wouldn't see the tragedy come. But in that tragedy, the Lord says, not only is it going to happen, but the exiles are going to respond to it exactly the way Ezekiel does here to his wife. Now, in the case of Ezekiel, he was ordered to. But in the case of the exiles, what explains their compliance with that? Don't think that they're doing it because the Lord's told them to do it. If that was enough, they would have done the right thing a whole time. They never would have been in this situation if they were inclined to obey him. So we have to ask, what causes them to do what he's asked Ezekiel to model for them? Well, first, it could be that they're in shock, stupefied by the news, not sure how to respond. Maybe it's because the way they'll find the news out is by the exiles who come back, the ragtag remainder with noses cut off and ears cut off, and they realize this is more devastating than we ever imagined, and they're, they're not in a position to take it all in. Moreover, their captivity leaves them without the freedom to mourn as they might prefer, because their captors are celebrating this victory and not interested in anyone who would you know, go with an opposite reaction. They're not going to tolerate it, perhaps. And the last possible explanation is they may not care. Not in the same way. That is, if they've lost that much interest in Yahweh and in proper worship, maybe the loss of the temple is not as devastating to them as we might think it would be. All of these are possible explanations. But he's simply saying to them, you're going to have that reaction to the loss of your temple. Bottom line is in verse 24. Ezekiel is a sign to the people. What he experienced will be what they experience. That goes all the way back to the beginning of his prophecies. So, just as God took something dear from Ezekiel, he's going to take something dear from Israel. So let's end the first half of the book with another burden that we will talk more about next time, but we can just introduce it briefly here. Verse 25, As for you, son of man, will it not be on the day when I take from them their stronghold, the joy of their pride, the desire of their eyes, and their heart's delight, their sons and their daughters, that on that day he who escapes will come to you with information for your ears. On that day your mouth will be open to him who escaped, and you will speak and be mute no longer. Thus you will be assigned to them, and they will know that I am the Lord. All right, remember I said the prophecy that starts this chapter, the one about the city being destroyed. This prophecy came to Ezekiel, and he delivered it on the day the siege began. All right, so all the way through here to... Uh, verse 27. This is all part of a 
one day or so event for Ezekiel. But the siege that's just started lasts three years. And it's going to be three years plus before the captives of that siege finally make their way back to Babylon in whatever state they're in. Ezekiel has prophesied the start of the siege, but now what the Lord has told him is, you're going to remain mute on this subject until the survivors arrive. So he's not going to speak another word concerning the siege of the city or Jerusalem's judgment until the siege was over. In fact, he may not have spoken anything at all apart from some specific prophecies that are given to him to speak during those three years. So once those refugees come in, then he's going to be freed up to speak again about Jerusalem. That's interesting because what it's saying is this. He has spoken nothing but judgment against the city. Now he's basically, as a prosecutor ending trial, he's passed judgment. They're now sentenced. It's coming. Now he sits back and waits for it to finish, saying nothing more. Once that has happened and the refugees come back and now they can report everything that has happened to confirm what the prophet has been saying all along, then and only then is he ready to pick up again in prophecy about what will come for Jerusalem in the kingdom. So until the judgment is finished, the next phase will not be discussed, but it has the secondary effect of making sure that when he speaks again, you know, they're going to listen this time. At least more likely, because they know that what he said the first time came true. All right? Um, So what are we going to do in the next series of chapters? Well, before we get to the chapters that pick up with the kingdom, there's a small section of chapters that we go to next that are prophecies about what God does to judge the historical enemies of Israel. And the reason these take the middle ground is because they're a nice uh, sidebar while we're waiting for the three years to come to pass. So Ezekiel is probably saying little or nothing on anything except what he's been told to say regarding these enemies. So what we'll study next is the stuff he says during the three years that are about Israel's enemies being judged while we wait for the chance to talk about the future of Israel in the kingdom. All right? So we'll come back after our break, and we'll be able to cover those, start into that. And these chapters will go a little quicker. We're going to do two more chapters again next time. And so we'll move through that section a little more quickly. Heavenly Father, our hearts probably got uh, a number of thoughts just running together right now, Father. Thoughts of, of what judgment looks like, how terrible it is, and questions of why and, and uh, issues of fairness in our hearts perhaps or concerns even in our own walk about whether we've stored up wrath when we know we've been saved by grace. I pray, Father, you would sort all those things out in our hearts and make sure that we know that, that our sins have been separated from us as far as the East is from the West by our faith alone. And so there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let us return to that assurance in our hearts so that we would not be disturbed at all or we wouldn't be concerned about things that have no reason to be concerned. And at the same time, Father, let us also remember the words of of Hebrews that we would not take lightly what we've received in you and profane it in our own way, and that we would not go on sinning willfully, that we would be concerned about your name and, and your glory and that this covenant we've entered into with you, Father, is is so important, it's so eternally important that we deserves our full and complete loyalty and, and obedience. We ask, Lord, that you'd give us that heart as well. And in weeks to come, bring us back. Let us continue and finish this study in your timing, Father, for so much is still there to, that we want to hear, that we want to know about. So, Father, thank you for this privilege to learn with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.